number five in our series on overcoming fear and anxiety. Last week, we considered some ways in which our culture and also the religious uh, gurus or experts um, and even the psychotherapists encourage people to deal uh, with fear, but apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ and uh, the biblical starting point uh, and method and goals of sanctification uh, as defined by the scriptures. So uh, it really is a situation of trying to mix oil and water. These things just simply do not, uh, do not go together the way that the world views uh, this issue of, of change. Uh, and again, in our, our discussions, this, this uh, struggle with fear uh, and anxiety and worry uh, and how to handle your emotions, the world, you know, the way in which they see that, the way in which they interpret that and try to resolve that, and the way that the scriptures view those very same things is just very, very, very different. Uh, we talked about some of those differences. We have, a, as believers, have a very different source of authority. Uh, we have different means and methods, uh, seeing the importance of the heart as scripture presents it to us. Um, we see this as a personal and relational issue, mainly about a person's relationship with Jesus Christ and the call to love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. So that really being at the root of any form of sinful anxiety or sinful fear, uh, this failure to, to love the Lord and to, and to express that love uh, in our lives. So it's a personal issue, it's a relational issue. We also have very different goals. Uh, the general goal uh, of the world and psychotherapy is for a person to be healthy and functional. And we said the problem with that is that they, they are the ones who then go on to determine what that exactly is. So they define what it means to be functional or to be normal. Uh, they sort of establish what, what, what normal is. Um, and, and, and what functional looks like, and then that becomes the target. Uh, is, is, is People who love the scriptures, we, we, we look at things like, uh, you know, what, how did Adam relate to, to God, and how did Adam relate to Eve prior to the fall, uh, before sin entered the world? Uh, we look to the person of Christ, the only perfect uh, man, and, and see how did Christ uh, view his... Emotions. How did he deal with the circumstances? How did he interpret what was going on around him? And how did he respond to various uh, pressures that came upon him? So we have a very objective way of, of defining what normal is, what functional is. Uh, the world, basically, you take a, 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 a psychotherapist and, and a patient, and the two sort of construct together what those goals are going to be, which means that from counselor to counselor, and there are, there are literally hundreds of different theories of psychology and practices of psychology. So depending on the therapist that you get and depending on the state of mind that you're in, you could come up with something very, very different. In fact, there are, uh, I know of Christian ministries that offer counseling that literally if you just go across the hall, you may get a different form of counseling. <laughs> so you've got people within the, the same office doing counseling, but those people are serving together in ministry, but actually have very different views of what the means are and the methods and the goals and all of those, all of those things. 
So it's certainly not the biblical goal of worshiping Christ and being changed into the image of Christ. And yet some still argue that we ought to combine the best of both, the findings of psychology and the teachings of the Bible. I like what Scott Mell says about this in an article where he's addressing the, the deficiencies of cognitive behavioral therapy, which I mentioned last, uh, last week is one of the more uh, popular forms of, of therapy in dealing with both fear and anxiety. One, one of those is just driven a lot by fi- fi- finances because it's a very, if, if you will, very economical uh, way of treating people. It uh, doesn't cost a lot of money to get, to get it, and it is one of those forms of therapy that for, for a lot of people is, is easier for them to sort of understand and comprehend what it's all about. But he writes about this, and he's talking about some of those uh, shortcomings, and he says, quote, he says, while it may look similar on the surface, CBT, or cognitive behavioral therapy, and the biblical process of change are in fact very different. This is not to say that there are not components of the biblical process of change that are echoed in the efforts of CBT therapists. There undeniably are. Ancient Stoics, Skinnerian behaviorists, uh, Ellis-inspired cognitivists, and modern-day cognitive behavioral therapists have all stumbled upon practical strategies that have been in God's Word all along and utilized by Christians for centuries. But that does not mean that we need to integrate their systems with biblical truth in order to more effectively help people. As Heath Lambert writes in an an essay on reparative therapy, once you realize that the effective elements of CBT are the instances when the the therapists are unwittingly biblical, it drives you away from that therapy to the scriptures, which authoritatively declares what will help people. When an employee, I love this analogy, he says, when an employee for a tire company approaches GM with a design for a new tire, but it's essentially the same design GM already uses, they don't hire the guy and ask him to oversee their entire R&D department. His expertise is limited to one rubber part of an incredibly complex machine, and all he did was recognize something that they had already known. Talk about reinventing the wheel. And so he just says that, you know, when you look at some of these, these philosophies and these therapies and you say, well, that, that, that kind of sounds biblical. Anything that, that, that resembles something that's biblical, is, it's, it's not that we need to, and this is what he's arguing for, Scott's saying, we don't need to, uh, to go and adopt what they're doing. We need to realize that they're hijacking what the Bible has already stated, Right, So this truth has been revealed by God. They happen to be sort of stumbling upon these things in sort of a common grace way. But we're so quick sometimes as believers to doubt the authority of Scripture and the clarity of Scripture and then to rush off and get behind some of these things. So we have the culture, we have the gurus, we have the world of mental health. And then sometimes we said it's the church itself that complicates the issue because the church embraces some false approach to sanctification or spiritual growth. And we have a number of sort of counterfeits for the real thing. We mentioned legalism, uh, antinomianism. We then mentioned the the mystical approach, which tends to separate the ministry of the Holy Spirit from the Spirit's own revealed words. Uh, So this is a, a huge 
huge issue in the church today, the sort of exalting of personal um, experiences over and above the truth, uh, exalting uh, a subjective listening to God over Scripture. And so what many of these people have done is sort of redefine what prayer is. Uh, They see prayer as something in which God is communicating with you rather than what prayer actually is biblically, which is us speaking to God, praising God, adoring God, confessing sin to God, petitioning God, interceding, and all those things. They turn it into something that's very sort of, sort of passive. And so they, 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 they uh, argue for a solitude and silence and sort of just sitting before God and waiting for God to sort of overcome you and overwhelm you with some kind of direction in your life that's going to help you deal with these types of temptations or struggles such as fear, uh, exalting feelings over a, a biblical call to walk by faith and trust in the character and in the promises of God. Again, sometimes even incorporating monastic teaching and solitude and unbiblical forms of meditation. So we need clarity. We ended with this. We, just, we need clarity, especially as it relates to sanctification and spiritual growth. Because if we're not clear on spiritual growth, then we're certain, we certainly won't overcome the sins of fear and worry. So this morning I want to spend some time looking at this issue of sanctification. If you want to turn to Galatians chapter 4, Galatians 4, and again, this is uh, the reason I'm, I want to cover this ground. Again, we'll, we'll, we'll pull all this together in the end, but um, even, even those who are committed to the scriptures, who would go to the scriptures and, and, and honestly want to sort of interpret what the scriptures have to say about something like fear or anxiety, oftentimes still fall short in, in dealing with these things because they still have, uh, if you will, sort of a, a quick fix mentality. So even though they're going to the word, even though they might say that they believe in the authority of scripture, it's that they don't understand the process of growth. They don't understand the, the, the process of of, of sanctification in the believer's life. And so uh, we could go to these passages. We could, there's, there's tons of them, really, that we could unpack and go to when it, when it, that, that speak about this issue of, of fear uh, or worry. But we need to make sure that before we go there that we understand how this works. This is not just take two Bible verses and call me in the morning, right? And people have tried this, right? They've gone to the, gone to the Scriptures. They've read a verse uh, in uh, about about anxiety, they might have they might have done a good job of interpreting. Maybe not. They may have just sort of parachuted in and ignored the context. But they go there, they find a verse that has the word anxiety or fear or worry in it. They memorize it, and then they assume that because they have put it to memory or they have it on a card on their dashboard or on their bathroom mirror, that then they're supposed to stop. That's going to prevent them from worrying. It's going to prevent them from being afraid. And so it really comes down to, I think, this whole issue of, of sanctification. Now, the issue that's going on when Paul writes this particular letter is that some, some were turning back to external things for growth in their lives and, and, and for, for salvation. They, they, having sort of confidence in external means is a, is a way to control their lives 
uh, or to control their, their morality or to give them a sense of acceptance before the Lord. And so this, this is what, again, we're, we're guilty of this sometimes, just thinking that, that, that uh, we're, we can control something in our life. And then even in doing that, if we have any kind of success in controlling that thing, the tendency of our, of our sinful heart is to glory in that, right? And so Paul's talking about this issue of, of, of going back to external things, which appeals to the flesh. Uh, we like to think that we're in control of our desires, and we like, we like to think that we're in control of our morality, and, and, uh, and, and going the way of these sort of external things is the easier path. Again, it's easy if you will, to write a verse on an index card and put it to memory, right? I mean, I'm not saying that that's inherently wrong. In fact, that could be an important step in the process of sanctification. But it's doing these things and then assuming that just because we're doing those kind of external things, that's somehow going to, to result in a control over our sinful appetites, and so we love the idea that through some easier method that we could work out our salvation in the externals and feel better about the, our morality because we have somehow controlled our morality. So Paul has to write to these churches of Galatia and ask, if, you've, if you have begun your Christian life by the Spirit, if you have started by faith, are you now going to be perfected by the flesh. He's just saying that, that, doesn't make, that doesn't make any sense. Galatians 4, verse 19, and you'll see Paul's, Paul's um, burden for them. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. It's a good way to describe what sanctification is all about. But he says, verse 20, I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. He says, if you, if you came to Christ by faith, it just makes sense that you would continue to walk by faith and that you would not turn back to these elemental things. You'll notice back in verse 9, he says this, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. Paul goes on in chapter 5 that we are free in Christ and have the power of the Spirit to do what is right, You notice down in verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Again, a very simple plan for sanctification. It's sort of, it's it's, it's one verse, it's got, there's a lot there, there's a a mandate there, there's a privilege, there's the, the power to do this, and then there's this guaranteed consequence at the very end of the verse. So when we sin, it says it's not because the desires of the flesh are too strong, even though the, the appetites of the flesh are not passive. He says they are aggressive, they are very forward and bold, they are in us. That, that's that, and he's speaking about that unredeemed uh, part of our old humanity, 
There, there is a, a, a war that is waging, verse 17, for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit. So it, it lusts against the Spirit of God. And God is, is equally opposed to our appetites, right? You'll notice the next part of that verse, verse 17, and the Spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another. So God, through His Holy Spirit, is at war with your appetites. So again, He says, when we sin, it's not because the flesh is too strong, it's that we are not walking by the Spirit. Or to, you might say, to be controlled by the Spirit. We're failing to be controlled by the Spirit, which is essentially the same thing. Verse 18 mentions being led by the Spirit. So we have to understand this. We have to understand that there's this war that is going on, uh, and we have to understand that, that, that if we sin, it's not because our appetites are too strong. It's because, and we have to own this, if we sin, it's because we are not walking by the Spirit. And we have to know that so that we don't make excuses. One of the reasons why I think that we fail in our sanctification is because at the very beginning, right, the very beginning of the battle, we don't really believe that we can say no to sin, right? I mean, it's almost like we're already sort of in our minds making concessions, right? We already are sort of uh, uh, yielding to the temptation in simply believing that this particular thing is so powerful that we, that we have to submit to it, right? That it's, that it's, that it's going to win out in this, in this warfare and in this battle. So we have to understand this verse because, for one, we don't want to make excuses, and we need to know that the Spirit of God indwells us so that we don't minimize this battle that's taking place, right? So every day that we wake up, we have to understand this, that there is a a battle that is going on, right? We, we can't just sort of stumble around half awake. Paul says these things are in opposition to one another. And so that's, again, part of the problem that we have is that we oftentimes go through our day without a sort of wartime mentality, right? We get up and we get ready and we start our day and then it's not till about three in the afternoon that we may face this temptation or some issue may, may come up that tempts us to, to be afraid, to be fearful, to be, to be sinfully concerned and, and to be anxious. And it, and it sort of throws us. It's sort of like, it's again, the people that describe uh, panic attacks often describe it this way, as if it sort of came out of nowhere and sort of blindsided them. The issue, folks, in, in part, is that we don't really live with this kind of vigilance. Right? I mean, we just don't wake up and begin our day understanding that there's a war that's going on. Right? We, we go as far as we can into the day sometimes until we are sort of it, knocked upside the head and have to realize that that is exactly what's, what's going on in our hearts. So there is, this, there is this war. We have to have this, very, this vigilance. It's why the Scriptures so often tell us to be sober. It's why the Scriptures so often command us and exhort us to be to, to, to be sensible, uh, to be alert. In fact, even in some of the contexts in which we'll look at these, uh, this issue of even anxiety, a part of that 
that, that context is that we need to be alert. We need to be sober-minded. We need to be aware that this battle is going on. Uh, then you'll notice the purpose clause at the end there in verse 17, so that you may not do the things that you please or wish, right? which points to this issue of control. Right? The spirit the spirit it says if you have this warfare that's going on, this battle that's going on, the spirit wants control and your appetites want control and the potential is there for you to be controlled by one or the other and you have a guaranteed path. You have a guaranteed course. You can walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh or you can foolishly do the opposite, but control is the goal to be mastered. Then he says in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So in in other words, if you know the Spirit and you have the Spirit inside of you that is waging war with the old appetites and and you recognize that work in you, then he says, know this, that you are not bound by the Mosaic law. You can He says, and must outright reject that. Uh, Any notion that you must go back under the old external way of doing things. He says, you you have been released from it. Going back to it won't help you in the fight. Rather, you must learn to live by the power of the Spirit rather than by the power of these old appetites. And then he gets very specific, verse 19. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident. They are They have been revealed, they have been made known, which are, and then he gives us this list of things, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these... So he's just simply saying this is a, this is a sampling of, of, of these. It's not an exhaustive list. Of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, these things are clear. These, are, these things are evident. They are clearly seen that absent... Of, of the leading of the, of the Spirit or absent of the power of the Spirit, these are the things that show up in a person's life. Right? E- even if a person on the outside sort of dresses this up, right? They, they dress it up with a religious exterior. And to this particular audience, Paul says, you, you can be circumcised, uh, you can go back to all of those rituals if you want, but that won't change the true condition of your life and heart or your inner man. You'll still have these sins in the corners and in the crevices and some not so concealed. The flesh gravitates to these things. And then you'll notice the word there in verse 21, practice, again, which is important because uh, if these things are, are, are a person's life pattern and there is no fruit of the Spirit, which he's about to mention, then you can be sure that that person hasn't been born again, all right? They, they have not been regenerated and saved. It's not that a true believer will never be immoral. It's not that a true, true believer will never be angry or bitter. 
But these things are not their life pattern because the Spirit is opposing these things in their lives. And yet in any given moment in the Christian life, there's no need to wonder what is controlling you. Right? There's no need to wonder as a believer what's controlling you, the flesh or the Spirit. Right? You, just, you just look at these lists. Right? You, just, you, just, you just find the category. It's not, it's not hard to do that. We have, a, we have a sample list right there in verses 19 and 21. And then you'll notice the contrast in verse 22 of what we'll see in the life of someone who has Christ being formed in them, someone who is gaining ground because they are being controlled by the Spirit. It says verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Again, uh, these things are just as clear. Against such, he says, against such things there is no law. That is to say, no law has the power to affect change or condemn if we have trusted in Christ by faith. Paul would say this over in Romans chapter 7, verse 4, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. So if, we're, if you're saved, you want to look for these things and you want to, to battle so that you'll see more of these things in your life. And then back there in Galatians 5, next verse, verse 24, he says, Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh, with its passions and desires. In other words, they are dead. Those, those sinful impulses, those selfish responses, those fleshly lusts aren't holding you in bondage like they once were. They've been crucified as to their, their dominance or their absolute sway in your life. Uh, or as you might say, and this becomes even, even more clear in, in the book of Romans, particularly in Romans chapter 6, where Paul essentially teaches there that you've been freed from the mastery of sin. That is a fact. So, verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, that is to say, if you, if you, if you came to Christ by faith and you have the Spirit in you and you have this new reality, this new life in God, you have this new position, then let us also Walk by the Spirit. Again, it sounds a lot like Romans chapter 6. In Romans 6 and verse 8, Paul says it this way. He says, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So again, he's saying this is a reality. Uh, This is is who you are in Christ. This This is what is true of you. If you have been united to Christ by faith, you have to understand that, right? And then he says, in light of that reality, you have to consider yourself now dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
And then as a consequence of that, verse, 20, uh, verse 12, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. So sometimes we refer to this as that dynamic in sanctification. We talk about the indicatives and the imperatives, right? So there is this there is this indicative in the Christian life, the reality that that I have been saved in Christ. And then there is this imperative, right? There, there is that which I must by faith do, right? Or you might say my, my role in the sanctification process. So when I was saved, clearly God is the one who did the saving, but I wasn't passive. In other words, God did not, God did not justify me apart from my believing in the gospel, right? In other words, faith was the instrument by which I was justified. So God didn't just forgive me. He didn't just save me. I, I was even in that a participant in the sense that I believed in Christ. I transferred my, my trust from myself and my own righteousness and my own works to the, the righteousness and the life and death and substitutionary atonement of Christ. So when I was first saved, God is the one who did that work, and yet I believed. And, and then in sanctification, clearly the Scriptures teach that God is the one who is sanctifying us by His power, and yet in that we're not passive, right? We still must believe. And there's language in Scripture that tells us to do certain things and to stay away from certain things. You even have that here where we are told in Galatians to walk by the Spirit. Uh, if, if, we, if you think about it this way, if we were supposed to be passive in that process, it wouldn't say walk, right? I mean, we wouldn't have this, this urging, this exhortation, this command to walk by the Spirit. It would say, basically, uh, the, the Lord has, has done this work in your life, and you just need to go live your life, and God will take care of your sanctification. But that's not what it says. Instead, the Bible says that you are secure in Christ, and that God is doing a work in you which He began, but at the same time, while He is doing that work, we are walking. We are walking. We are putting off old mindsets. We are putting off old patterns and putting on new thoughts and new mindsets and new habits. We are being controlled by the Spirit, which we are commanded to do. Over in Ephesians chapter 5, we have similar, similar language in verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Literally, be being kept filled with the Spirit. It's a command. 
We're commanded to be careful. We're we're commanded to to walk in a certain way. We're commanded to make the most of our time in light of, of the days in which we live. We're commanded to not be foolish. We're commanded to understand what the will of the Lord is. Right, that this isn't, this isn't in any way passive. These are commands. Paul's saying, don't, don't, don't descend into those temporal pleasures that control and enslave. Rather, walk wisely by being filled. Again, God does the filling, but we are commanded to be filled. Uh, then we have Romans chapter 8, verse 12, which is all about the power of the Spirit in the believer's life. He says there in in verse 12, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, or the, the dictates of the flesh, you must die, or you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So he says, the old man is dead, but I must put to death the remnants of him, because I'm, I'm no longer in his grip, yet I must kill the echoes of him or the old appetites that remain. Why? Because to do anything else is to live according to the flesh. So according to Paul here in Romans, we're, we're, we are putting to death the deeds of the body, striving according to the Spirit's life-giving and sanctifying power which brings this, this assurance, says in verse 14 of Romans 8, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. Again, this is another, if you think about this, it's another, another indicative. It's a statement of fact. You are a son of God. You are a child of God. You are truly saved because you are being led by the Spirit of God. How do you know that? Because you're putting to death the deeds of the body. By his power, by his enabling, but you are doing the work and making the effort. What effort? Primarily believing his words and yielding to his commands. Which is a, 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 a believing, it's, 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 a, it's a work of faith, it's a yielding work. Submitting to what you know, yielding to the truth that... You know, in fact, people will say this, you know, they'll struggle with particular sins and they won't have any victory over those things. And they keep saying, well, but, but, I, but I believe the Bible, I'm, I'm, I believe what the Bible says, but I'm not having any victory. And I'm saying, no, you just have to keep going back to this. Do you really believe what it says? And we're not talking about simply the imperative or simply the indicatives, right? Because those are the things that everybody wants to talk about. Right? I mean, I believe that God has done this. I believe that God has done this. I believe that this is my position in Christ. I believe that this is what the Lord says of me. But what I'm saying is that alongside of those, or following those indicatives come imperatives. Are you, do you believe those things? And if you truly believe those things, then you're yielding to those things. But that's often where we fall short. So we begin with the indicatives, those simple statements or facts that reveal to us what God has done or is doing or our status or position. And you'll remember last week we, we saw the, an example of this, which uh, we looked at uh, David's battle with fear in Psalm 56 when he was on the run from Saul and hiding out in a cave and endangered by the Philistines. And he wrote in verses 8 and 9, he says, You have taken account of my wanderings, put my tears in your bottle, are they not in your book? 
Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. What does David know? He knows that God is aware of his sufferings. He believes that. He, by faith, he believes that. He knows that God is aware of his sufferings. He knows that God is for him. He believes that. And so he makes a purposeful decision expressed in these words in verse 3. When I am afraid, I will trust in you. There's a yielding. So we start with the indicatives, but we then yield to the commands or the imperatives by faith. The point being that the indicatives lead us to the imperatives, and both are necessary for our spiritual growth. If you only emphasize the indicatives and you never move to the imperatives, you'll end up rejoicing over the, the, the grace and the mercy of those indicatives, but never strive to be holy or cut yourself off from growth because you were saved to do this. You were saved to strive. You were saved to pursue holiness. You were justified in order for Christ to be formed in you, to walk in newness of life. So, so you don't sit back and relax and say, well, the Spirit of God is going to do it because it is all of His grace and His power. We know that, right? We know it is all of God's grace. We, know, we, we, we understand that it's all of the indicative in terms of its power and its source, but to imagine that there is then nothing for us to do or obey or live out is imbalanced. So if we overemphasize the indicative... We, we could come to the conclusion that, that, that no battling, no, no effort, no striving is necessary, or that striving is always a form of legalism, which is what you hear a lot. When you start talking about effort and you start talking about working out your salvation, this is the sort of the go-to criticism, right? Well, that's legalism. And so if we overemphasize the indicative, then there's this assumption that that's, that's always a form of legal, legalism. On the other hand, if we overemphasize the striving and not the indicative, we will become a moralist, and we will become those who are self-righteous, where it is all about self-effort and self-atonement, because we don't believe that it's God's power working it out. I believe it's me, right, and my own power working it out, which, which does make me a moralist and a person who thinks of spirituality and only externals, which is, which is equally dangerous. So but I'm just saying both, both of these things are dangerous, right? When we don't believe what the Scriptures teach, whether it's the indicatives or, or whether it's the imperatives, right? If, if, if we don't pay attention to both of those, then, then, then there's a ditch, right, on either side. But it's always a lack of faith. It's always a lack of faith. It's always an issue of unbelief, which in the end is, is self-righteousness. So we, we must yield to what the Spirit says, and we must yield to His control rather than our own. That is the only way, yielding my mind, yielding my will, yielding my, my faculties, my life to Christ in obedience. So we're just, we're, we're just asking that question, what, what does His will say and in any situation? And whatever that is, then we actually entrust ourselves to it. We live by that. That's faith. And when I do that, he, by his power, is in full control rather than me 
fighting him for my own way, my own belief, for my own righteousness. So how do we know that we believe? We yield to his will. That's how we know. How do we know that we truly believe what the scriptures teach? We live by his word. And you can always tell when you don't believe it. How can you tell that you don't believe something? You don't obey, right? You don't yield. Because what you'll find in those people's lives is they're saying that they believe, but then when you get right down to the actual choices that they're making, they're not yielding, right? They're not willing to come underneath the Word of God. They're not willing to come underneath the imperatives of Scripture. They love to talk about the indicatives, but again, when it gets down to the imperatives, they, don't, they won't make that choice by faith. I'm saying it's still an issue of faith. They have to believe that they can say no to sin. They have to believe that they're free from the mastery of sin. They have to believe that the Spirit of God indwells them and enables them and empowers them to live in a way that pleases God. They have to believe that they can, as a believer in Christ, walk by the Spirit. So you you can tell that. You can tell when a person doesn't believe because they don't, in the end, yield their lives to the truth. They don't live a life of obedience to God's Word. It always comes down to belief which is expressed or manifested in yielding. And true faith always works it out. Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. This, this, is, uh, this is the way our walk with God is characterized in the daily Christian life, as faith working through love. That is to say, a working trust. So the Christian is not passive. He is active in the sanctification process. You think about some of the metaphors that Paul uses to describe the Christian life. Paul says, I box, right? I fight, I run, I strive, I work. So this is all spiritual gymnasium language, right? There's not any, any, any sort of this uh, idea of just kind of sitting around, right? Just sort of vegging out spiritually, right? That's not the way the Bible describes sanctification. Sanctification is active. The Puritans used to f- refer to it as holy sweat, It's about being engaged in my own sanctification. And one of the reasons why I think so many Christians aren't growing is because they are sitting on the spiritual couch or they're standing on the spiritual sidelines thinking that God is going to drop the magic sanctification dust on them from heaven and then they will become super Christians. So the people that are dealing with anxiety and fear, I'm saying if they have a wrong view of sanctification, then what they're doing, rather than actively believing the the indicatives and the imperatives of Scripture in regard to those particular struggles, they're believing the perhaps the indicatives, but then they're not striving, right? They're not yielding to the truth of God's Word and pursuing holiness and entrusting themselves to God and His Word and His character They're sitting back, they're really passively waiting for God to deliver them from anxiety. For God to sort of supernaturally deliver them from that that grip of fear. But as Paul points out, that is imbalanced. Is God at work? Absolutely. He is the source of the work. But the believer must be actively engaged. The reason why so many Christians are not growing is because they are not doing anything. 
They're not reading their Bibles. They're not praying. They're not meditating on Scripture. They're not serving in the body of Christ. They're not expressing their gratitude. They're not loving their families. They're not sitting under good teaching. They're not examining their own hearts or thinking about what they are thinking about, guarding their minds. They're not, they're not fleeing from temptation. They're not mortifying sin. They're not practicing the fruit of the Spirit. They're spiritually lazy. They're, they're sitting back waiting for God to do this. Or maybe they're ignorant. Maybe they just haven't been discipled and been taught what to do. But for many, they just don't see their own growth as something that they are commanded to be actively engaged in. So God didn't just start this. He goes on with it. He continues it. But Paul says, by the Holy Spirit, God is at work in you. He's in the vital depths of your being, energizing you both to wills, Philippians 2 says, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Again, Paul, Paul makes it clear that without the Spirit, you can't do it. But having received the Spirit and with the Spirit working in you, then through the Spirit, you must mortify the deeds of your body. After all, if all we have to do to be sanctified is to let go and let God, to surrender ourselves and just look to Christ, then the writers of Scripture, especially the apostles, have wasted a great deal of ink and time and energy in arguing, arguing with us about this particular doctrine. And saying, in light of this or that, now then apply it. This, these urgings to apply the Word of God or, or to do this particular thing or to avoid or to flee that certain thing. Why did they say all of that if all we needed to do is to surrender and to look and to abide or to sit back just waiting to receive something? So this is the process, folks, of, of, of sanctification. It's not easy. It's war, but it's spirit-filled, spirit-empowered change. We walk by the Spirit. And unfortunately, to a lot of believers, there's just not, that's not exciting. <laughs> it's just not, there's, there's, no, there's no enthusiasm and there's no passion in that. There's no, there's no emotion in that, right? There's no, there's no these, these sort of these high and lofty thoughts of the Christian life or these high and lofty thoughts of God to sort of push me into obedience, to carry me into obedience. It's just dry. It's a total disconnect for the emotion-driven believer who is looking for some inner thing to launch them into spiritual victory over fear or lust or whatever. But what does the Scripture say? You put to death the deeds of the flesh. So what's the problem? We're mis- we are misdiagnosing why we are failing. We think we're believing, but the reality is that we're not yielding and we're not submitting and we're not obeying, which is not biblical faith. Biblical faith isn't passive. Biblical faith strives according to the Spirit's power. The problem today in the church is that so many people want to claim belief, but they don't want to obey. It's uh, Jerry Ragg. He's down, I think it was last year down at the um, Ecclesia conference, or maybe two years ago. But he was talking, speaking about this issue of of faith and sanctification. But he, I remember him bringing up the Passion Conference and saying, "Man, you you title a con- a conference Passion, and you get thousands of people to attend. If you would have called that conference obedience." 
you would have had probably 10% of the, of the young people show up, right? The problem is we want to say we believe, but we don't want to obey, which either drives, drives believers toward a, a, a form of liberalism, going after the flesh, eventually even letting go of, 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 of doc, the clear doctrine of justification, or it drives them to some form of ritualism where they have a, a burdened down conscience in order to deal with what, what they're failing in on a regular basis. And so they turn to some sort of formalism in order to salve their conscience. So you have candle burning or some sort of thing from from the church history, which is uh, there's which there's a at this point a flood from evangelicalism and among young people back into Catholicism, sometimes forms of Anglicanism, going back to the contemplative life because they like they like the ritual. They like the high church liturgy because it makes them feel closer to God. Why? Because all week long their conscience is burdened down with fleshly living that they haven't been able to control. Or you have from the charismatic side of things the danger of this mysticism because of this drive for passion and feelings. People are disillusioned and are looking for some subjective experience to offset their lack of victory in daily daily living. So we need to understand this issue of spiritual growth. Let me just quote, and I'll let you guys go. We'll end with this. This is from a book by Erwin Lutzer called How to Break a Stubborn Habit. This is actually just from the preface, but this is so. This is really what we're talking about. He says this. He says, The philosopher Seneca cried, Oh, that a hand would come down from heaven and deliver me from my besetting sin. Right? I mean, that's kind of what we're saying. Is people are waiting for this experience. Oh, that the hand of, a hand from heaven would come down and deliver me. He said, his plea has been echoed throughout the centuries. We've all wished for the same miracle. Stubborn habits begin innocently enough, but because we don't master them, they quickly master us. We all experience the cycle. Enjoy a forbidden pleasure, feel guilty, determine never to do it again, take pride in brief moments of self-control, then fail once more. Each time we repeat, that, repeat the pattern, the ruts are cut a bit deeper, the chain is pulled a bit tighter. Excusing our behavior because we're just human, we become pessimistic, even defiant, and soon find ourselves victimized by sinfulness that refuses to budge. This behavior pattern becomes so familiar that eventually we don't even want to change. As we settle into an uneasy smugness, we come to feel at home with our anger, lust, worry, eating habits, laziness, bitterness, and selfishness, except during our small and occasional attempts at correction." We may even begin to congratulate ourselves for these small bits of effort, though they result in no real lasting transformation. Can we really be delivered from the one-step-forward, two-steps-back routine? At times, I thought the answer was no. Despite my sincere attempts at yielding myself to God, I've retained certain weakness, weaknesses, sins, is a more honest word, which I've concluded I would simply have to live with. After all, no one is perfect. But I knew my private failure was no credit to Jesus Christ, who won me to himself by dying on the cross and offering me eternal life. Did he not promise that, he could, that, that we could be free? Through many failures and a few victories, I've discovered that the most persistent sin can be dislodged. 
We can be free from sins, even the ones safely tucked away in the crevices of our souls. In ancient times, large cities did not exist with unending suburban sprawl as they do now. Rather, all the inhabitants of a city lived within the confines of a giant wall that served as a protection from outside forces. Oftentimes, during battle, an enemy would concentrate its attack on the weakest point of the wall in an effort to bring it down. Enemies habitually exploited the same weakness with startling success. Wouldn't it have made sense for the inhabitants of the city then to rebuild the defective fortification in preparation for the next assault? In much the same way, we repeatedly succumb to the same temptations without a constructive program for strengthening our defenses. We accept failure as a way of life, reasoning, that's just the way that I am. God has a different plan for which he has given us a message of deliverance and hope. True, there are no easy miracles. Our success is neither instant nor automatic. Slick and easy solutions lead to false expectations, expectations which in turn spawn disappointment and unbelief. Applying biblical principles takes time and discipline, but steady progress is possible. Even long-established and sinful behavioral patterns can be replaced by wholesome attitudes and actions. And that's really what we're saying, folks, is that too often we give in, too often we yield, too often we try the same things over and over and over again and then claim that they don't work. People that say that they believe this and they've tried this, I always say, tell me how you've tried, right? And what you find is they, they really haven't made that much effort in this this, uh, this battle against sin, in this issue of mortifying the deeds of the flesh, in this issue of walking by the Spirit. But we've got to understand this process of sanctification and, and be on guard against these faults, these counterfeit forms of sanctification, whether it's legalism or mysticism or whatever. We've got to find this biblical balance if we're going to have victory over these particular things. So we'll come back, we'll talk about this process of renewing our minds and replacing, uh, putting off the old, putting on the new. But I think this is, it's, it's critical for us to sort of slow down a little bit and again to add this, uh, just another block to this discussion. When I say sanctification, fear is an issue of faith, again, that's not just some, uh, just, uh, some sort of trite statement, you know. You know, we don't say, well, if you want to do that, you just got to believe, right? We're saying we need to believe the way the Bible tells us to believe, right? To entrust ourselves to the truth that's there and not just the indicatives, but the commands of Scripture, right? We follow those commands by faith. And if we don't keep those indicatives and those imperatives in view, then we'll, we will struggle. We will drift into forms of, of legalism or, or moralism, focusing on the externals, or we'll fall into this trap of focusing on the indicatives and then lean on some sort of experience or some, some, some sort of hand from heaven to come down and deliver us from fear and anxiety. So we'll talk about how to sort of in, in the moment kind of unpack those things, right? How do you go to the Word of God in those moments of temptation and not just believe what is true, but then take that and actually put feet to it and truly believe, which is a, a belief that leads to obedience, a belief that leads to obedience in the Christian life. Okay, guys, thank you so much for your time.